Welcome back. I'm here again with Lynn Buchanan. Lynn, welcome back. It's good to see you as always. Good to be so, back. So today we're going to answer some of the questions that have been posted on Reddit. And okay. you know, with that, Lynn, I'm going to pull up the screen so that you can see the questions. Okay. Can you see that pretty yeah. well? Yeah. All right. So the first question is, this is about remote viewing of the future. Yeah. Because right, so what, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, even the most proficient RVers often view the future differently from how it turns out. Absolutely. We have a um, an analogy about this. There are several reasons for this. This analogy covers one of them. You get tasked by the police to tell where the criminal is going to be at 9 o'clock tonight so they can arrest him. And you say, okay, at 9 o'clock tonight, he's going to be at Joe's Bar and Grill eating dinner. So at 8.30, they go out and hide in the bushes at 8.45, he walks up to the diner. They jump out and arrest him. And at 9 o'clock, he's in jail. You were wrong. Okay? If you had said he'll be in jail at 9 o'clock, they would not have gone out to Joe's Bar and Grill, and he would be sitting there eating dinner. Mm -hmm. Okay? The fact is that you make a prediction you predict the future as it stands at the moment you do the session. Then if somebody acts on it, it's going to change it. Right after 9-11, I was tasked to do a thing on the next terrorist attack on U.S. soil. I found a ship coming in and some sailors coming up in a small boat carrying some plant poisons and they were going to just spray a crop just to sort of rub our nose in it. Like, you can't protect your entire border and all this. And we can come in anytime we want. And so I gave the time and the place and, and what to expect. They sent out <clears throat> agents. They evidently caught the guys as they came on shore and arrested him. And so that much of my thing was true. But I also predicted that they were going to spray these crops and kill the crops. Well, that never happened. Okay. We found that if you predict the future and somebody acts on it, it will change the future, making the viewer wrong. And in this case, hey, I'm very happy to be wrong. And the other thing is, you know, just unknown, unpredictable changes, just random. <clears throat> just like the weatherman will tell you what's going to happen with the weather next week. But every day he makes updates. And we have found that in predicting the future, one session doesn't do it. You keep making updates and your accuracy will go up. And your accuracy will often show that the closer you get to the 
event, the more you contradict what you've already found. Mm-hmm. And so, what about what about distance from an event in time? So, the farther out it is, my again, my intuition would tell me it's much more difficult to predict because there's so many more random processes that can happen between you and the event that it can knock you way off course. Whereas if it's closer in time, it's easier. Is that accurate? What you have found is that that's true up to a point. Beyond a point, it becomes more accurate again. And uh, we have another analogy called uh, the pond of time. You're a bug on the pond of time and you see another bug across the pond by a rock and you think that would be a good meal. And so you go skittering across the pond and you set up a wake in front of you. That wake makes the other bug fly away and so it's not there when you get there. Okay? But the rock is. There are rocks in the pond of time and things that will not change, period. And what we've found is that the future is changeable up to one of those rocks, like the 9-11 situation, okay? After that, from way back, you give me the date of, you know, any time following the 9-11 situation, and the information will be accurate again. And so, yeah, it's... It's almost as though the accuracy rate wanders off and wanders off and then slap comes back again, you know. But there are rocks in the pond of time. And what would you characterize? What would you characterize as a rock in time? Uh, things that will not change no matter what you do. The 9-11 event was one of them. There were ways to prevent it. It wasn't prevented. It was a rock. A comet coming through space going to hit the Earth. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> you know, you can make science fiction movies about how to stop it, but that didn't stop it. And, you know, that's one of those things, events in time that is going to happen, period. So that's what we call the rocks in the pond of time. The other things, like the bugs skittering across the pond, the minute you act on the future knowledge, you change it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Any anything else to add on this particular question? No, I think I pretty well beat that one to death. <laughs> I do too, but I, I just wanted to make sure that I did my due diligence on that. Sorry about that. Okay, now you, you're going to have to explain some context on this one because... I'm, I don't even know what he's talking about here, but I, I have a sense that I have a feeling you might. So he's asking about what, what causes the Earth's population die off that you've seen in the coming years. I was tasked with the session of the future of the U.S. And, and who, t- who tasked you with that? A, a corporation. This is back in oh. 1998. Okay. And what I found was I dug out that session even, that in the year 2020, a series of man-made natural disasters was going to start happening that would last for about 20 years. 
By the end of the 20 years, almost 75% of the population of the U.S. and generally the world would have been killed off. So a remnant of about 25%. And that after that, the governments would have to change, the economy would have to change everything. People would be more self-sufficient. Starting in 2020, I got that cities, schools, and things like that would start emptying out. People would start teaching their kids at home. Any communication between people would be through technological means and all that. And that it was a man-made natural disaster. And uh, a series, it was the start of a series of man-made natural disasters. Now, I don't know what's coming next, but I do know that Russia has earthquake weapons. We have weather weapons, plagues, diseases, viruses. Those are weaponized and being created in the laboratories, you know, ostensibly for protection, but actually somebody's using them, can use them for weapons. Yeah. Now, is this a rock or a bug? I did another session, you know, this panic about. December the 21st, 2012. Oh, yeah. Uh, disaster and all this. I kept getting requests for what's going to happen. Is what I kept finding was nothing big or special was going to happen, but that it was a top of the hill type event that we could prevent all this future that would be in 2020 if we did it before 2012, but after 2012, it was going to be downward, 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 picking up speed and picking up speed to the point where it becomes a rock in the pond of time. We can't stop it at this point. That session also had a tremendous number of genius children being born and a number of sickly children being born it had uh, the things that are going on today now when you said man-made disasters is is that connote intentional or could it also be unintentional both <clears throat> for example one of the uh, arab states <clears throat> emirates have bought up land over the past couple of de decades in uh, Arizona, and also our own businessmen have taken and built farms. And there are actually armed guards around those farms. And they're pumping water out of the underground reservoir at the estimated rate of 3,000 gallons per hour, 24 hours a day. And suddenly, the natural disaster of the mid-United States is going completely dry. You know, the weather changes and all that, that that's causing um, natural disaster, but it's man-made. Well, you can also, the most obvious thing that happened in 2020, obviously, was the pandemic. Yeah. And look, I, I am more... That was a laboratory virus. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, yeah, you just said it, right? But like, you couldn't say it. You couldn't say it right at the beginning. But it's if you use oh, Occam's yeah. razor, it's the most, it's the simplest explanation, or the not the simplest, yeah. but the most logical explanation. You have the the only level four containment facility in all of China, in Wuhan, within a block of that institute, the outbreak begins. All right, yeah. and they blame it on a wet market. But in order to be- to believe the wet market thesis, you have to believe that a bat bit a pango pangolin, and then a pangolin was eaten by a human, and it somehow transmitted. Which just doesn't like. There's just too many things that you have to believe in order for that thesis to be true. Isn't it a coincidence that a few blocks away, a virus cropped up that just happened to be the exact same virus that was being invented in the lab? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was the, it was the it was the novel coronavirus lab. Yeah, uh-huh. right. What and, <laughs> well, I also I also asked myself like if that's the case, why wouldn't the US government you know be touting this thing and it turns out it's because the NIH funded a company that funded the research, right? Yeah. I, it's just so it's it, it boggles my mind that and then suddenly it's just it, you know you were racist to even suggest the lab leak you know theory. Oh, I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, with that in mind, that is a man-made disaster. Yeah. And now uh, I don't I don't know how many know. millions it killed. It didn't kill. You know, it probably killed what four or five million worldwide. You've still got the COVID killing people. You've still got the long COVID and and so on. Yeah, this is a man-made natural disaster. Yeah. A virus is a natural disaster. Yeah. So what have you, any more, any more, anything else to elaborate more on? Did you kind of see different modes of what these things possibly could be? One of the things that Session came up with was a change in warfare. Basically, the the need for guns, tanks, weapons, and missiles and all that is going to start diminishing as people learn to use nature as a weapon. Like I say, we have we have uh, weather weapons already. The Russians have earthquake weapons. In fact, there was a, an interview on Russian TV last year over one of the with one of the researchers, and he was drunk as a skunk, you know, and he was bragging about how they tested their earthquake weapons to cause Fukushima. Wow! And that that program was quickly scrubbed. But I speak Russian. Russia watch Russian TV, and I caught the I caught the broadcast. Yeah, and it was quickly scrubbed. You can't find it anymore. You know? Interesting. What else did you see in that session? I mean, did you see anything that would have given you an idea of what could potentially cause this? massive die-off just you know the series of 
man-made natural problems, weather changes, economic changes as a result of the natural changes, also the use of nature as a weapon, which I think is, according to that session, will become a growing situation where these things that will can affect nature can be used as a weapon to flood places, earthquakes. If the Russians were to decide to use an earthquake weapon on La Palma Island, which is part of the Canary Islands, the volcano on the side that faces the U.S. A section is already split off that is 15 cubic kilometers of rock. If that thing slides into the sea, it will demolish Florida. It'll, it'll wipe out Florida. It'll wipe out the east coast of the U.S. up to an estimated 26 miles inland. And that is not a prediction from the remote viewing, you know, those measurements. That's from the U.S. Geological Service. And, and that would be not from a volcanic eruption, that would be from the resulting tsunami. They, displacement uh, from the... They're seeing that the thing will slide off if there's earthquakes and uh, torrential rain soaking because that whole thing is kind of porous. And, you know, the volcano erupted several months ago, and it was a slow eruption. It was a natural eruption. But that further weakened that 15 cubic kilometers of, of rock. And so, you know, a really good pinpointed earthquake on Canary Island could wipe out the eastern seaboard. How does this alleged weapon work? Is it like a sound weapon? Know. Is it acoustic? I don't know. He was he was just bragging that they have it. What's your probability of this happening? You know the difference between genius and stupidity? Not answering that question. <laughs> the answer is genius has its limits. Stupidity doesn't. And I've always had the prayer, you know, Lord, deliver us from idiots in high places. He hasn't answered that prayer yet. And no, uh, it, it, it feels I, like it's getting a lot worse. I mean, it really is. And I'm afraid that with increasing suspicion, my estimates of it actually happening are going up. And then in the coming years, what what does that mean? 2020 to 2040, 2020 to 2050? And what I got was that after 2040, the population is called out. The remnant of people are demanding honest government, fair economic situations. They still live separated. And they still have the technology 
that they didn't have back in the 1800s. So communication with each other through technology is so much easier and becomes the standardized thing that personal interpersonal meetings and all that generally wind up being a thing of the past. Also, the IQ level, of the general IQ level average goes very high. So, you know, the, the remnant of the people are generally very high IQ, very demanding on honesty, freedom, and so on. And that for the next many, many decades, it's really sort of an earth is really sort of the ideal place to live. That mankind as a unit is better off for this whole thing. And what's driving that shift toward higher IQ? Just the people who survive are higher IQ? Or because I imagine there's going to be a high degree of randomness too. Yeah, that's another long story from a researcher that we met. And it is a long story, way too long for this thing. Uh, but it's a oh. it's a proven trend. Also, the number of epileptic epileptic children is rising too. And how's that related? It seems to be the opposite of the high IQ. Not meaning that they are low IQ. But the high IQ group of children that are being born today is six times the normal rate. And from what I hear, the number of epileptic children is also about six times the normal rate. And and how's being epileptic tied to any of that? I don't think so. But but I mean, how's how's it related to six times the number of I think, I think what it does is it just forms a dichotomy of what's going to be the general population when those kids grow up uh, i see all right any other thing to, anything else to add on this particular topic not that i can think of <laughs> yeah it's hard to get into detail when there's a lot of yeah. hypotheticals I'm giving you some long answers for short questions. I apologize for that. No, no, the audience loves it. Don't, don't, I, oh, there's no apologies for that. Oops, let me. Okay. <laughs> I get this question all the time and Morales answered it. I suggest, I, I would be very surprised if you answered it any differently, but this is the psychedelics question. You know, using that to enhance remote viewing sessions, et cetera. No. Experiments were done with that long before I got there. And by the time I got there, they showed that, I mean, even taking aspirin or something can have an effect on your on your remote viewing ability. Now, there was another study, though, not about remote viewing, but about learning. And that is that you do your best work when you're in the condition that you were in when you learned to do the work. So if you're an alcoholic, let's say, and you learn the remote viewing or any other skill, 
while you're an alcoholic, you'll be best at that skill when you're drunk and, and so on. And so how that plays into the effect of psychedelics or, or any other thing when it comes to the learning and performance of remote viewing, I don't know. I don't have the data on it. But they did show that psychedelics, medicines, anything like that that's out of the normal will adversely affect your remote viewing. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Oh. But the question keeps coming up. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. We actually talked about a little bit about this in the last episode, but yeah, if you want to add anything to the, I mean, we could either start with the control panel discussion, but we're just elaborate on it Yeah, in terms of how they uh, fly. In 1812, I think it was, a UFO landed in North Japan. And this female inhabitant got out, carrying a box around with her. And it's called the Itsurobune in Japan, which means an empty ship. The people were allowed onto the into the ship. They found no motor. And yet this woman carried this box with her the entire time she was out of the ship. She got back in the box, I mean, into the ship. And the ship took off and all that. Is this um, the box that they show like throughout various cultures, like the Aztecs and things like that, where they they have this, it looks like a, I don't want to say satchel maybe, but it's just like, a, it's got like a handle and it's just a box, but it's across various cultures. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Ed Leeds Coleman in Florida, who built Coral Castle, was lifting 10 and 20 ton blocks of stone, basically by himself. There are all these pictures of his workplace, and there's this box sitting up on top of one of the poles. And it's not part of a winch or anything like that. It's a box. And he could lift these 10 ton stones up with the, you know, nobody ever knew how he could do it. But there was a box. I have done session after session after session that I call what's in the box. <laughs> <laughs> what's in the box? What's in the box? What's right? From <laughs> and uh, I've gotten descriptors. For, for for the uninitiated, that's a that's a quote from the movie Seven. Oh yeah. Right. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And I have never been able to understand how it works. But I think that that thing, I know the crashes at Roswell and Aztec and the other UFO crashes, they, they collect all of this debris. And I don't think they ever find a motor or a driving mechanism. Do you get a sense that these craft are? In terms of the power source, anti-gravitic, electromagnetic, some form of power that we're 
not familiar with yet? Yeah, we're not familiar with. I think it has, now this is my analysis, this is my AOL, that it has a magnetic component. If you, you know, they say, well, if they're so advanced, why do they keep crashing? If you have a flying mechanism that flies using magnetism, and out in space, you're doing fine, all that. You come to Earth, which is an iron core planet mm -hmm. with hills and all that, with varying magnetic fields all over the place, and you fly low to the ground, you're going to crash. And so when you, when people report seeing UFOs, they see it going very slowly, very slowly, very slowly, and then shoots straight up and then takes off. Okay. And so this leads me to deduce that part of the driving mechanism is driving force is magnetic because they're getting away from that irregular magnetic field of the iron core planet. Once they get away from it, then they take off. Now, uh, you know, I have a, I have a you know, person who watches the show who uses that as kind of evidence that this isn't, they're not extraterrestrial. They're actually humans from, I don't know, Atlantis or Lemuria or whatever, some foreign, fallen civilization. Germans, Germans operating out of uh, Neue oh, yeah. Schwaben, Schwabenland and oh, Antarctica. Uh, any comment on that? Everybody has a theory, and they hang on to that theory like they're lost at sea, and it's the only thing that floats. You come and rescue them from the theory, they cling on to it, they won't let go. Just like the guys see a boat comes to rescue them, they're not going to let go of that log that floats. So it's all theory. I have the fact, and that is that I don't know. <laughs> and that is a truth. I don't know. But I hear this theory and that theory. The Ancient Alien show came out not too long ago and said that if you take evolution up to this point and continue it on, we're going to wind up as crazy with big heads and and skinny bodies and all that. And it's another theory. Yeah, time travelers, future humans, right? Yeah, whatever. The fact is, I don't care. They're here. That's what we've got to deal with. Any other theories on how they fly? You said one component is, in your opinion, potentially magnetic. Any other components? I think there has to be some kind of anti-gravity situation. Not sure I understand it or know what it is. Yeah. Okay, and then I'm just going to throw in some. Are you are you familiar with Bob Lazar? Yeah. What's your What's your opinion of that story? Which one? Oh, you so, mean the the. Area 51 and the adjacent thing? Yeah, S4 uh, and the, the I, nine craft, reverse engineering, et cetera, et cetera. I tend to believe it, yeah. 
Okay, because he he's the element one fifteen guy, right? With the with the waveguide and the you know the kind of waveguide in the center that is kind of the directional mechanism, and yeah. then and then he you know claims it's an anti gravitic structure, and also some of the craft that he witnessed according to the papers that he was given, which as you as you well know, a lot of those things are seeded with some disinformation just so that if there's a leak they can pinpoint who leaked it etc so yeah. he wasn't sure but one of the things that was in that literature was that there was a some of these craft were recovered from ar- archaeological digs yeah mm-hmm. so all right let's anything more to add on this one not really i think there has to be some kind of an anti-gravity situation to it but that again is a logical deduction. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so a lot of this, a lot of what we're talking about is speculation. I think oh, yeah. in this field, you just have to be open-minded. I, like, I'm not going to, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. And I'm even the most outlandish theories that I hear, I'm not going to completely laugh at because sometimes they're right. Not often, yeah. but sometimes. I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. This is the remote influencing persuasion thing. Yeah. Can you protect yourself from being remotely influenced? The answer for, let's say, 99.9999% of people is no. It's at the subconscious level, no. And if you don't believe that, just go into a store and see which see which products you buy. The subliminals subliminals are extremely powerful. They work on the subconscious mind, and, and there's no real defense of it against it. And so the mental influencing is exactly the same. There's no real influence against, I mean, no protection against it. Other than just avoiding going into the store. If you can do that, you know, and you know what it is, the remote influencing, yeah, it, it happens without you knowing it. And so, so you don't protect yourself from it, even if there is protection. Okay. And anything else to add on that one? I believe all of us are influencing each other all the time. Well, sure. I can sense it when somebody is thinking or feeling intensely about me. Yeah, we do that. Everybody does it. Everybody has intuition. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is, again, going back to some of those predictions. So this is the Deagle 2025 forecast. I'm just, rather than clicking on the link, there's... This forecast, uh, Deagle was a uh, you know somebody who worked for the Rockefeller Foundation. He was a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, served in Vietnam, worked in several U.S. administrations. I believe was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, et cetera, et cetera. I guess he served under three presidents. He has this forecast that he put out before he died. I think he died in 2014. Mm-hmm. That shows a massive 
depopulation, not only the United States, but all its allies. So you would see it in Europe, but not Russia, right? Belgium, et cetera. I think the U.S. population right now is about 330-some million, dropping to 100 million. Let me just see what this says. Yeah, so this is just kind of related to that. I think your theory about that island in the you know Canary or near the, the not island, but that terrain feature near the Canary Islands. Yeah, that um, the, La Palma Island. Yeah, La Palma. Yeah, La Palma Island. Right. So it is an island. That'll that'll probably net you a hundred million right there if you take out the eastern seaboard. But yeah. And the thing is, note the wording here, I only see a nuclear war causing that. Uh, nuclear is really passe at this top, at this point. If you can get the weather to flood a country or starve a country, kill crops and all that, you don't need to nuke it. Right. You know? Well, especially especially in your in your remote viewing session, you had a continuation of global communications, right? In a yeah. nuclear war, in a nuclear war, that would not That's be right. the case, yeah. yeah, because of the EMP impact, all that, all that stuff. So, yeah. anything else to add on this one? I think this is more of a comment than anything else. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. Here we go. Now they're looking for safe spots. Yeah. Um, Is there a reason you live in New Mexico now? Yeah. When I retired, I wanted to live in Cloudcroft. We moved here and found out that Cloudcroft at the time didn't have computer stores or internet. And I thought, how can the natives possibly live here? And so... (laughs) We started looking around all over the place, and my wife said, I like Alamogordo. Let's live there. And I said, "It's a." I remembered Alamogordo from when I was a kid as a dirty spot on the highway, and I'm not living in Alamogordo. And she said, I like Alamogordo. We've lived here for 25 years now. <laughs> you know, happy wife, happy life. And that's so right. um, that's that's how we came to live here. But yeah, New Mexico is sort of a safe spot in many ways. You're not going to have a tsunami here. You're not going to have a lack of electricity here. We get 320 days a year of sunshine. I run everything on solar power. We're completely on solar power. We've got uh, our own well. We do hook up with natural gas right now, but we're slowly replacing everything with electric, and we'll be totally off the grid. I'm not a hardcore prepper by any means, but we're packing away food. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, I would just encase her. Mm -hmm. not a prepper but just in case you know because I don't see good times coming I really don't so you would would call New Mexico a safe 
a safe spot. Yeah, it's stable land. There's no real earthquakes here that is predicted to change once the aquifer below the Midwest dries out. They're expecting some, you know, earthquakes of some kind over the next couple of decades. But uh, yeah, this is very stable land. I have recently bought a 122-acre ranch that I'm turning into a remote viewing training place. And it's out right on the edge of White Sands Missile Range. It's in a no-fly zone. You go out there at night. It's five miles from the nearest small, dinky little town, which is a small oasis town there in the desert. And, and you can see stars all the way down to the horizon. I have never in my lifetime been able to see that before. But the nights are so clear. It's so quiet out there. One of the people I took out to help see, you know, oversee the ranch, he made a very good observation. He said, it's so quiet, you can hear it. You can hear the silence. And, and it's very true. The silence becomes a thing that you can actually hear the silence of it. Fantastic place for training. We'll be using it for training and retreats, conferences, and things like that. We have a GoFundMe right now. If you want to see a quick view of what the ranch looks like right now, remoteviewranch.com. I'll put that in the Lynn, if you just send me an email after this with yeah, the link, okay. I'll put the link in the description so Indeed. that folks can click on that and see the ranch. Uh, I did, oh, incidentally, yeah. how many how many remote viewers do you typically train a year? Generally, around fifty. I try to keep the classes small. Now that I'm training online, the classes are bigger. Mm-hmm. When I was training in my home, I always kept it to three or six people. But now, whoever signs up for the class goes through the classes online. My basic course is stages one, two, and three. And that has 160 plus videos. And we have a webinar, in-person webinar every two weeks. The intermediate course now has a little bit over 140 videos. And we have, on the intervening weeks, we have webinars for the intermediate course. I'm working on the advanced course, the medical applications course, the monitors course, the database course, the analyst course, project managers courses, and all this. So by the time I finish, it's looking like it's going to be about 1,500 videos. And do you have a separate link for that as well, for those courses? I have to my website and those a link to the courses. The uh, the courses are on the Kajabi platform. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. You know, I think it's the best platform there is. It um, is. It, for for digital courses, it's it's a phenomenal oh, platform. Absolutely, yeah. And so the links to the courses for some 
pre-sign-up videos and, you know, to sign up with the Kajabi course, they're on my website, which is C-R-V-I-E-W-E-R, C-R-Viewer.com. And that'll also be in the link below. Okay, good. Okay, so next question. This is related to the, the time question that we had earlier. So if the future can be remote viewed, how deterministic is the universe? How do you think time works? We talked about the rock and the bug and all that stuff, but is there anything else you want to add to this? First of all, everything you've ever learned about time, scratch it. It's not true. The future can be remote viewed. How deterministic is the universe? Like I say, there are certain rocks in the pond of time. Between those rocks, we seem to have free will. So the whole question about, you know, I forget which church it is. It says predestination. Calvinists, right. Calvinists and free will. They They both exist side by side. You know, there are things that are going to happen. So this is like in near-death experiences, the destiny versus free will sort of things. Like there are certain things that are going to they're going to happen to you no matter what. If you believe all this, again, I'm just throwing out theories. And then there's like they say, you know, life life is a chess game with God. You can play any way you want and make some smart moves. He's going to win the game. And the other analogy along that way is that. Life is a race with death. And you can run as hard as you want and be in whatever shape you want. But the finish line is six feet underground. (laughs) You know, so, yeah, there are some things that are destined. But between then and now, you have free will. Yeah. And it's all how you respond to it, too. Yeah, that's right. It's not necessarily what happens. It's just how you respond to it. Okay. Oh, this is a great question. I forgot about this one. You see this? So is there a target that you wanted to be tasked with? Actually, it's multiple questions, but the first one is, is there a target that you always wanted to be tasked with, but you never received? Yes. And I've never received it, but I've given it to myself, and that is, what's in the box? <laughs> I, you know. So, uh, what is in the box? I don't know. I, I wish I could figure it out. I I get descriptors of it, and I can't figure out what it does or how it, how it works or anything like that. It's some technology that's beyond my understanding. So, um, what, what descriptors do you get? That it's part of it is in parallel lines on a base of some strange solid material and that the solid material is in layers. And some of these are rare earth layers. Some of them are just like gold, silver, you know, plain straight elements and all that. What it does and how it works and how it can make something fly, I have no idea, whatever. Sounds like a semiconductor base built on top of a superconductor. Seems like it, yeah. Have I ever been tasked to do my own past or future incarnations? I've done that on my own too. And I well, did that. So, so there's a lot to unpack. 
There's a lot to unpack there. So let, let me step all the way back. So okay. based on your understanding of reality and based on your experiences, is this question even within the realm of possibility, i.e., do you believe that we all have past and future incarnations? I don't. Okay. Uh, in fact, I was tasked with this one time with, um, it wound up about 64 different taskings. What's on the other side of death? These were blind sessions. I didn't know that that's what the target was. As a control mechanism, they had me describe the person at a specific time. What I didn't know was it was right before they died. And then move forward one hour in time. Now describe the person. I never found a ghost, but only had like 64 different trials, so I don't know. I found that some people go to what I would call heaven. Mm -hmm. Some people go to what, for me, would be absolute hell, not as places, but as, you know, as situations for the soul afterwards. Some get reincarnated, and some just quit existing, period. That's, that's, that's horrifying. So, and so... You know, I've come to believe that all of these are possible and probable. I did some follow-up studies once I got feedback on the people, and it didn't seem that their religious beliefs or whatever was what determined whether they go to heaven or hell or get reincarnated or quit existing. So I don't know about that. I just found four categories of what happens after death. And, you know, one church will say, no, here's what happens. Everybody else is wrong. Agnostics will say, you know, here's what happens. Everybody else is wrong. Everybody's wrong in thinking that theirs is the only way. Mm -hmm. Did you find any correlation between the way the person lived their life and what the outcome was, or was it, did it appear to be completely I, I really, random? I really didn't. Of course, what you have is the reports of what how the person lived. So, you know, whether, whether they had a secret life and secret sins and all that, I have no idea. Right. Uh, you, you know. And, and how would you describe, like, the cease to exist? They just... Just wink out, gone? Yeah, they just they were just gone. What about the description you know what you saw as a conception of the you know the of hell? It was a place of absolute darkness and horror. And usually when I got one of those, I would wind up having nightmares for weeks afterwards. Just I mean, just just an instantaneous thing that just closed the session down and made me just recoil and uh, I would start having nightmares and all that. So absolute total horror. Once that I would call heaven was just different people would wind up in places where they were just happy as they could be. Some with loved ones, some not with loved ones. 
and so on. As far as the reincarnation, almost every one of them I found reincarnated into a young child of about 12 or 13 years old. Say not, more. Not as a baby. Hmm? Yeah, say more. How does that work? Well, the only thing I know is that most cultures have that coming of age thing, you know, around 12 or 13 years old, where now you're a real person. And each one of these that I found that reincarnated did reincarnate into preteen child. Now, there are stories, of course, of babies being born who, you know, at age of one or two or five or something like that, recount past life stories. So, like I say, I had a small sampling. I didn't have hundreds of these sessions. Anything about it that disturbed you? I mean, hell, I mean, you, you kind of explained that, but. Yeah, not really. Well, yeah, waking out of existence, period. Yeah, uh, that's almost that's almost more disturbing. Yeah. Did you get the sense that these outcomes were imposed by an external authority or imposed by the entity itself, the, the person's soul itself? I have no idea. I was remote viewing, so I was reporting what I was describing what I saw. Okay. Uh, All right. That's. Yeah. I, I, we probably go go on and on for hours about this. Is there anything else to we should add before we go to the next question? Well, not that I can think of. The, it became very real to me once I found you know got the feedback. The four possibilities are there. Like I say, in that sampling, I never saw a ghost. So. But it was a small sampling. Yeah, I've heard interesting theories on well, what poltergeist may or may not be. But one one of the one of the more interesting ones is that, from a quantum mechanical perspective, we're all vibrating at a certain frequency, all the way down to the atoms and things like that. And time is really a human artifice. So what's happening is everything is happening simultaneously at all points in space and time. And a ghost is just, for some reason, that resonant frequency where that person is living their life, which may have been in the past, somehow interse intersects with your reality. And you're just getting echoes of a live person, essentially. But again, it's a theory. I don't. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where the theory is, but it's a theory. I don't. Yeah. And um, one theory is another. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, that and that just gets ascribed to ghost. The other yeah. thing, particularly with poltergeist activity, probably comes very close to home for you, is it's not ghost. It's you. Yeah. Right. It's with the yeah yeah with the light bulbs and things like that. Right for yeah. psychokinetic. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right, so next question. What do you think would be the most valuable target for remote viewers to work on aiming towards providing value to humanity as a whole? Humanity as a whole? I think they should focus on 
a single problem and remote view to find out what the solution of it is. When they get that, tackle another problem. This was from a remote viewing session. I didn't do it, but someone else did. They said the rising price of gas, okay? The thing came about having a gas out day. No, nobody buys gas. Okay, the next day they go in, they buy the gas. The oil companies and all that, they didn't lose anything. And so this one person worked on a solution to the problem. And he came up with, take the top oil company and boycott that company. They will either quit producing gas for cars and, you know, as fuel, or they will come down on their price. When they come down on their price, the other companies are going to have to match it. Okay. So then go after the second largest company <laughs> and the prices keep coming down as you pick them off one by one by one. All of a sudden, price goes up. Yeah. And it's logical, but that's what the guy found in, uh, in remote viewing. Yeah. yeah. The laws of supply and demand, Adam Smith, is rarely wrong. Yeah. The thing is, the remote viewing does not have to be used for woo-woo or ethereal stuff or even, you know, what's on the planet, Scooby-Doo, somewhere out in time and space. It has actual practical applications. Tell me where to find the missing child. Tell me. I'm on the parking lot. Which one of these cars should I, you know, on the car lot? Which one of these cars is the limit and which one should I buy? Practical, practical reasons for the remote viewing. Now, going back to the question about death, dying, anything to add about that in the transition? Did you see anything in the transition when somebody died? I really characteristics? Because, because the monitor always moved me an hour ahead. And so instead of moving me slowly through the process, they would get me at one point before death, move me to after death. And what's the difference, you know, or what's... Well, then there's the question of what's one hour in that realm versus what's one hour in the physical world too, right? Yeah, I really have no idea on that. Yeah. Okay. I think I think we got all the questions. By the way, I didn't kill a goat. <laughs> I killed the computers. The sergeant who did kill the goat did go through the death experience and it really had a very bad effect on him. Yeah. Really affected him emotionally. Oh really? Can you say more about that? No, just that from what I hear he never really got over it and it changed his life changed his attitude toward life, everything else. He never did anything like that again, as far as I know. Oh, so it actually had a negative. It, it, it worsened his outlook on reality. No, it worsened it. It made him more serious about it. 
and and also about what he had done to that goat. Interesting. Can you say more? I mean, like, for instance, is killing the goat using his ability worse than just taking a knife to its throat? Probably not. I know how I couldn't take a knife to his throat, you know. The thing is, though, the goats and that experiment were goats that were being used by the medical training. And what they would do is they had these poor goats. They would shoot them in the leg and then have medical trainees patch them up and all that. And they were doing horrible things to these goats just so that the medical people could practice operating on them, practice, you know, all the different healing methods and all that. Because, you know, very few soldiers die of natural means. There are healthy people that bad things happen to. Mm -hmm. And so they were using these goats, just like sometimes they use the chimpanzees and all that for medical experiments. And I would imagine that by the time that goat died, it was ready to die. That it, you know, it was probably wanting to die. Because, you know, living your whole life in a cage, getting shot every now and then, getting operations that don't need to be done and all this, that's got to be a life that you don't want to keep living, you know. So I would imagine that it was a relief for the goat. And that's kind of what he saw in that. No, I don't think so. No. What do you no. think he saw? That I think he saw up? a living creature that he killed. Interesting. All right. Another question that is not on here, but I've seen you talk about this on a prior podcast of sorts. I think you talked about the abilities that humans have, particularly with remote viewing, to see across space and time mm-hmm. and extraterrestrial races that we've had contact with. Some that are psychic, some that are it's like a it's like a matrix. You have psychic ability, no psychic ability, friendly, hostile. Can you talk a little bit about that four by or that two by two matrix? The thing is it's it's abilities that everybody has. The controlled remote viewing that Inga Swan developed simply lets you communicate with your subconscious, which has all of these abilities to some degree, Mm -hmm. varying degrees for different people. And so, like when you get into stage six, one of the columns of information that is in the English one process lets you go out and do dowsing, come back and write the report, write the results into that report so that it becomes a formal report. You can go out and do scrying. Shoot, if you if you wanted, you could cast bones or gut chickens or read entrails or, you know, dance naked in the moonlight or whatever and come back and report. And the English Swan method at that point opens up to every other field of psychic endeavor and uses that as a tool 
to find information and come back and report it in a standardized reporting method. And so the, the protocol for the English one method is not only structured by human psychology, also uh, martial arts, but it also organizes your session. It gives you control over your remote viewing. Um, many people say, oh, you're a controlled remote viewer. That's a misnomer. You're a remote viewer. Controlled remote viewing means the viewing is under your control. And so you're a remote viewer who has control over the remote viewing. That's why it's called controlled remote viewing. And so all of these methods, they all come in from the same place. They're all effective to some degree. And it's just more uh, of like a tool to focus your mind. It really is. Yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. That's why anybody can learn it. And that's why we should not always discount things that are off the beaten path sometimes, like not remote viewing, but we're you know talking about uh, just throwing things, like palm reading, things like that. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of charlatans, but for some people, yeah. it's a method of focusing or a Ouija board or something like yeah. that. The beaten path was beaten to get away from all those things. <laughs> and, you know, those things are real and they're there. Yeah. But somebody who wants to ignore those stays on the beaten path. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, what about this matrix, though, with the friendly, hostile ETs, psychic, non-psychic? Okay, I was tasked, this was after I was, after the service, after I got out of service, I was tasked to do an assessment comparing and contrasting ET involvement of psychic ability with human psychic ability. And I was given access to things that will never see the light of public illumination, you know, of abduction events, abduction experiences, and all that. Over the whole period of time, I managed to cut, to categorize, this is my categorization. Mm -hmm. They tend to fall into four fields. One, friendly an enemy, those two fields, and in each one of those fields, more psychic than we are, are equal or less psychic than we are. And so you could divide them up into one field, those aliens into another field, those aliens into another field, and all that. And the non-psychic friendly ones come here for trade. And uh, I know this, I've gotten feedback on this from my friend who is, you know, in charge of the technology transfer. Those who don't like us come here by accident if they come here at all. They stay away. That are less psychic than we are. The ones who are more psychic than we are and friendly generally want to help us develop our psychic ability. The ones who are against us, enemies, 
and more psychic than we are. They want us wiped off the earth. They want us, they want us, they would just want to get rid of us, period. And I couldn't understand the uh, motivations of those two last groups. There was this one incident, documentation of an incident that I finally got that sort of made me develop a theory that I still hold. There were these uh, three guys camping out near a lake. They saw an, they saw a UFO coming toward them. They were standing there. It got right over them, and they froze, and they were abducted. And what dawned on me from this was that the ET psychic ability may be stronger than ours, but they don't have any range. They have to be right over you. They have to be at you to do their psychic work. With remote viewing and with human psychic ability, we have weak psychic ability, but our range goes across all of space and time. And so once we get out into space, and if we have strengthened our psychic ability by the time we get out into space, we're going to be a pretty strong force in space. And that's why those friends want to help us do it. And our enemies, they don't want us out there, you know, and they don't want us learning these abilities. And those are the four categories that came up in all of the many, in all of the documentation that I was given. And why hasn't this unfriendly group wiped us out? I think they've tried many times. We have we have we have space weapons now. In fact, many people have, you know, if you watch ancient aliens and things like that, they've actually seen photographs of the space weapons firing. There's this one where it's out the astronauts have taken it out the window. And there's this thing that comes, and all of a sudden, zoom, and the thing turns around. Yeah, it shoots back out. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. We've got the space weapons. And what I would like to know and can't find out information about, how do we identify friend or foe? You know, with airplanes, every, every airplane that flies on Earth has a little unit called the IFF, Identification Friend or Foe. How do we tell like an incoming UFO, how do we know whether it's friend or foe? I don't know that. But and how do we do you have a sense shoot across the bow? Yeah. Do you have a sense for the unfriendly ETs what they what they might look like or be like? I think the friendly ETs you kind of had an experience. Yeah. That's not like that sounded said, friendly. Like I say, they're just people to me with different types of bodies and all. And the ones that I have been tasked to observe and all that are the ones on Earth who are friendly. Those on other planets, I just observe and describe. That's it. I don't get involved. All right. Any any last advice or things you want to leave the, the audience with? Well, when it comes to the... Uh, 
future, get self-sufficient. Y2K. Oh, if the, the computers go out, then everything's going to go to crap and, you know, we're all going to die. And if that had happened, yeah, a large number of people would die because the infrastructure would fall. If you don't depend on the infrastructure for your survival, then you're better off. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, survive. Let your family survive. All right. With that, thank you very much, Lynn. It was a pleasure right. and it was very illuminating. I'm sure that people will love, love this episode. Okay. And then, well, actually, all three of them. And I haven't even asked, but, you know, if you're finding the audience is finding value in this, please subscribe to the channel and then I can keep making more videos like this. So thank you again, Lynn. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe and I'll see you next time.